All right. We are in the paragraph that says in the category of Bainini. That's where it starts. If you would please open your text, the appropriate page. Um, it says chapter 15. I don't know, do you have page numbers? What? No, next paragraph. In the category of Bainini. No, I just was told to, how much would we would we need? And I said, should I give you the maximum possible? I said, yes. I said, give the maximum possible. At the pace we're going, do you think we're going to get through all of it? All right, what have we learned? What have we learned? We've learned nothing. No. Uh, no, we've learned. We've learned things. We have accumulated knowledge. Like, you know, like those hot water urns that you put the water in over Shabbos and you empty them after a while and you see there's like all the sediment caked in the bottom. That's how we accumulate knowledge. There's so much goes in and only a little bit sticks. That's the way human learning works. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. So we learned that there's a difference between a tzaddik and one who serves God, which is reflected in the difference between um, the title, Eved, servant, which is similar to the title, sage or king, versus the active present verb, one who serves, meaning the person is just doing that action. Because to be a tzaddik means you have accomplished something. You have succeeded in mastering and transforming yourself that the only thing that has interest to you is to be in service of the truth of God. In contrast, a Bainani has not achieved that level of mastery. So though in practice, everything the Bainani does is based on how to serve God better, there is an internal struggle to overcome the temptation, the inclination, the attachment to things which drive one away from God. And because they have succeeded in managing and figuring out how to live in a way that, that leads them on the right path constantly, we can describe them as one who serves God. It's not just happenstance, but at the same time, they've not really achieved um, something. They haven't accomplished something. They haven't become something. Now what we're going to do is we're going to turn our attention to the idea that within the realm of the Baini, there's actually different degrees. In the category of Bainini, there are also to be found two gradations. Namely, one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So what we're seeing here is that service of God is not synonymous with doing the right thing. The Bainini always does the right thing. And yet, just because you're always doing the right thing does not necessarily mean you're serving God. Why? So the idea that I said at the end of yesterday's class was that service is when you are doing something for someone else. So if you are not actually doing it for them, even if they benefit, it's not really considered to be service. And that's going to be the kind of theme that we're going to see developed here. Yet the latter is not wicked, for never in his life did he commit even a minor transgression, and moreover he filled all the commandments which are possible for him to fill, including the study of Torah which balances everything else, his mouth never ceasing from Torah study. So because this person is a Baini, and earlier in time the... the, the the Al-Tareb established based on texts from the Talmud that the Bainani is a person who never sins. And if this person is a Bainani, despite their lack of service of God, they have never sinned. This, of course, raises a question. If you've ever sinned once in your life, could you become a Bainani? You said you can't become a man. 
I know, but because I have to speak in English, yeah. um, I, I, I'm, I'm using it as a category, even though if we're going to think about it more deeply, you're not necessarily becoming something. That is correct. So someone, we're describing them now as a Bainini, yeah. and previously they sinned. Is that a feasible scenario? No. Well, we might as well close the book and go home then. I don't know about you, because, but I'm not, you know, I've, never, I've sinned before in my life. Twice, actually. <laughs> I avoided the third time because three times establishes a precedent. I didn't want to do that, you know. Keep my options available, maybe I'll do tshuva. Um, no. Okay, so we, we, I've mentioned many times that, that the bainini is how, a way you're approaching life, right? Yes? Okay, so it's a kind of an internal state. If a person completely changes the way they approach life, how do they relate to their previous actions? So the Rambam in his Laws of Tshuva says something very interesting. He says that one of the, one of the signs or one of the indicators of Tshuva is that the, when the person who did Tshuva, they say, it wasn't me who did those actions, it was someone else. Which means part of doing Tshuva is, of course, avoiding taking responsibility. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but that's what it implies. I didn't do those things. Someone else did those things. No, so, so we have to differentiate between two different notions of saying I did something. One is a notion of taking responsibility. Okay? And, and I think it's helpful if we set up contrast. Many times when we say something, we end up confusing ourselves when we're communicating with, with other people and even with our own selves because we're using the same phrasing or the same wording in a way that can mean two different things without even realizing it. So it's helpful sometimes to set up contrast. Um, I, I use this example a lot with colors, so I will use um, the following. Um, that water bottle, that NCS, it's a water bottle, yes? That NCSY water bottle. Now, if you were to ask me and I, what color that water bottle is, the first color that comes to mind would be, take a while, yes? Blue. I would say blue. <laughs> now, if I think about it again, right, and realizing that, like, you know, it's not like, blue blue so i'm going to say well okay it's more of a greenish blue but it's like greenish blue maybe it's like a turquoise or a teal or i don't know something like that okay okay now you might say it's more green and that's because the issue of perception right but it's like but whether i like call it blue at first or call it green at first once we contrast it with a more um obvious example of blue or green Once you, once you contrast it with a, with a more obvious example of blue or green, you realize you want to call it a slightly different color. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. And this happens all the time, right? If I say something is big, and then someone else or I myself describe it as small, right? If you realize I meant it big in reference to this thing, but small in reference to that thing. The thing with the cups again. Right. The vein, like the vein in the cups, so you had a cup that's big, you had something else that's, you know, if you compare it to that bookshelf, the bookshelf is obviously much bigger than the cup. Right. So, and this applies with, with things that are going to be less obvious. So let's actually take this word, obvious. What does obvious mean? Very clear. Okay. It's something that's clear, right? Okay. So sometimes when we mean that something is obvious, we mean that you should have seen it, and therefore you're somehow at fault for not having noticed it. Right? But sometimes we say it's obvious, we mean it's guaranteed that everyone will see it. 
Now, those meanings are contradictory because one meaning imply, means that it's a definite possibility you wouldn't see it, but you should have. And the other, the other meaning is that it's impossible for not to see it or notice it or whatever, right? So even there, every, every and this is, this is a problem of, of just the way we use language, it's unavoidable. So it's helpful to disambiguate by putting things in context and in contrast with other things that helps draw out the two different meanings. Okay. Um, if I were to say that I didn't, let's use an example. Let's say I stole somebody's wallet. That's a sin, yes? Okay. And I were to then do tshuva and I would say, I never stole the wallet. And what I mean to say is the fact that their wallet was stolen had absolutely nothing to do with me. It's in no way my responsibility. It's, it was someone else's doing. God did it to them. It was an act of nature. I don't know. But it's not my responsibility, and therefore, I don't need to pay them back for the stolen wallet. That would be one sense of I didn't steal the wallet. Yeah. Another sense of I didn't steal the wallet is that when I think back to the time when I stole the wallet, I don't recognize myself. I have changed so much that when I look back, it feels like I'm watching a different person when I examine that memory. I cannot place myself back in that state of mind. Those are two different meanings for the phrase, I'm not the person who did that, right? One is an avoiding a responsibility and one is, an, is, is the ability to recognize how much you have changed since the time of the sin. Which one is the Ramamini? Obviously, it's the second one, right? That shuva should be transformative to the point that it's not just you're not doing the sinful behavior, you no longer recognize your, yourself in your memories of your own sin. It seems strange. It seems foreign. If you like examples of this, um, you remember being seven? Okay. Um, what? I mean, being seven was very weird, right? It's very different. Can you, can you like imagine going back to being a seven-year-old? Really? Why? Why? But wait, one second, one second, one second. But, but do seven-year-olds feel that way? No, it felt so misunderstood as a seven-year-old. So would you, so you see what I'm saying? Like you can look back as an adult and appreciate there's something charming and beautiful about being seven. But that's only a, that's only a, I'm going to just guess right now and I apologize, a 20-something-year-old looking at a seven-year-old. Yeah. You can't really put yourself back and see yourself as being seven and see it that way. Because if you did, you were like, oh, wow, that's a whole different experience. So there's... Uh -huh, that's a good thing. You don't get that. Yes. Youth is wasted on the young. It doesn't work like that, right? I, 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 I've told my wife many times, wouldn't it be great if we go back and start over a marriage after all the years that we've learned all these important things about how to like build a successful relationship and start over from that point? And her response is yes, but then it wouldn't be the same marriage anymore. <laughs> we wouldn't be us. Um, yeah, that's the yeah, right. No, but so there's this sense in which you've changed enough. It, it's you, you can recognize it and you can see the good in it or the bad in it, but it's not you anymore. In that experiential sense, in that way of recognizing yourself. Um, and, and, and you really can't, like, you, you could want to have all the virtues you see in a seven-year-old, but you can't really want to be, go back to being seven because you would lose everything that you are now and you just can't, can't let go of it, can't see yourself there. Okay. So, 
but it wouldn't work like that. No, it's not just unre it's not just unrealistic. I want uh, think about this for a second. When you were seven, you wouldn't realize that this was a one day event. And when you come back, and when you come back. You wouldn't have the memory of I was just seven. It would be like I was seven a lifetime ago, the same way it is now. Yeah, seven at 23. Yeah. What you want is to have both at the same time. Yeah. Just for a bit. All right. So someone who's sinned, clearly their relationship with Hashem is flawed in some way. Yes? Can we hear that? Because if you're willing to throw away something of infinite value, i.e. your connection with God, for something of temporal value, such as ice cream on Yom Kippur, then clearly there's something off in the way you're relating to God, your godly soul. Okay. Now, if a person is a Bainani, that clearly is not a problem, right? They're, they're always going to do the right thing for reasons we'll get into. So that means there has to have been some kind of a shift, some kind of a transformation in their underlying attitude towards their willingness to reject God in their life. And so in that sense, we can say, as they are now, they have never sinned. The person who they are currently has never sinned. Not in, in the way, in, in, not that as a matter of like objective reality, the sins that happened in the past, some other person did and that other person needs to be responsible for them. But in a sense that the inner person doesn't recognize themselves in their previous state when they were sinning. And so what the author was implying by this phrasing is that to go from a wicked person to a Bainani implies a, a real transformation in how you relate to yourself, possible. which is possible. Oh, is the author right? Is it is possible? It is absolutely possible. Not only is it, not only is it possible, it's expected. Is it easy? No. No, it is not easy. Um, can, can I give you an analogy just while we're on the topic of things that are Possible, expected, but not necessarily easy. Okay. Um, have you ever been in a public setting with a parent, not your own parent, some other parent, who has a small child who is not behaving properly and the parent loses it? Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then you have this thought, which you're only allowed to have until you have your own children. I will never act like that with my children. Yes. What? I'm not talking about a specific behavior. I'm just talking about that general yeah, state yeah. where the parent okay. loses yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, what happens when you become a parent? <laughs> what? Good night. Well, let's just say all those parents probably had the same thought that they would never do that when they become a parent. So, so here's the thing: like, children are wonderful. Children are amazing. Um, but little children also are somewhat like they're on acid all the time in the sense that like their perception of reality does not conform to your perception of reality. <laughs> so it's very hard sometimes to relate to them. And so what, what do people do when they feel like they can't succeed in things? They often lose an internal sense of control, right? Hence parents of small children very often. Yeah, scream, lose a sense of control, just get flustered, right? Okay. Um, is that something that necessarily has to happen, or could you not make, or could you make sure that doesn't happen? You could make sure it doesn't happen, right? It does not require some miraculous intervention to keep your cool and to approach things in a reasonable way and deal with the situation as is, right? You could it's do that. Hard. It's very hard. It's also an expectation. 
In other words, this is very important. As a parent, you have to have this. It's not like you get four four times per month of losing your cool, that's good. Or, or, or twice every six months. There's not a certain amount of times where you can lose your cool and say, okay, well, that's a, that's a good amount. The expectation is to never lose your cool. And, it's a, and it is a reasonable expectation because the same thing that you can do to not lose your cool one time, and you did that, and the next time you could also do it another time, but is it easy? It's not easy. It's hard. Um, and so in that kind of sense, Dr. Rebbe is saying that a bainini is something, to, to, to live life as a bainini, I'm avoiding saying be a bainini in light of what we spoke about yesterday's class, to live life as a bainini is something which is you're capable of doing. It's something that you should expect of yourself. And it's also something which is difficult. And so therefore, if you haven't succeeded, the, the solution is not to wait for something magically to change, but to figure out how to do a better job of it until it's working. Okay. Yes. So when we say that we're asking for teshuva, it's almost like we don't recognize the person who's doing this thing, right? When we're asking for teshuva, when, when we're doing teshuva, we're not very. Not, not when you, when you, if you have done teshuva, right. teshuva has many layers. The basic layer of teshuva is you stop sinning. The yeah, highest level of teshuva, right, is where you're not just not sinning; you've gone through a process of 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 of, of growth or change within yourself, so that you're no longer the same person. You were when you sinned, so the sinning is obviously not going to happen. But let's say, so let's just the analogy of a parent. That's right? going to be like re- reach level of mm-hmm. But that impulsive response that maybe you won't actually like act on to like mm-hmm. yell at your kid or whatever is still there, but you're not acting on it. So that part of you still exists. Oh, right. So, so the issue here is the issue here is that there's that the. the there's two very important things. I mentioned them briefly when we spoke about the difference in Tzaddik and Abedi, but I'll elaborate them on again because I think they're important. There is a difference between something being part of you at all and then what part of you it is. Okay. Very specifically, there is a part of us which I call the, what you, the willingness of a person. There are certain things you are not willing to do. And, what I'm, and the way you can tell the things you're not willing to do is even when you are in extenuating circumstances, you're still not willing to do those things. And that could also be phrased in the positive. There's certain things that you you, you feel, uh, uh, you have a sense that you must do, meaning regardless of the cost, you're gonna do them. So like there are people, I'll choose the parenting example, there are people that get upset with their children and for them, whatever reason, I'm, I'm not saying this is purely descriptive, I'm not saying this is right, this is wrong, but like they're, there's, they're not willing to physically hit their children. So that's just the line, like no matter how much the parent loses it, they, nev- they, they, just, they could never bring themselves to cross it. But like completely like verbally abusing the child in public, they have no, not they have no qualms about, but, but like that, there is a willingness to that. So what really the transformation of Chuva, the transformation of Abania is on the level of, what, of that willingness. Which is, it's not the same thing as, it's not a transformation of the level of instinct or desire or attachment or these other parts of ourselves. So the fact that I might enjoy a sinful behavior does not make me the same person I, I was when I sinned. What, what makes me the same person is just like then I was willing to throw away my connection to God for something temporary. Am I still willing to do that? Or am I not willing to do that? If I'm not willing to do that, something very fundamental has changed. Even though those desires and attachments might still exist. So, so, so one, one, one second. Let her 
finish asking, then I'll answer your question. Yeah. So I'm saying, so it still exists, but you're just kind of different in the systems within yourself that you're not going right. to act on it, basically. Right. And that has a lot to do, he says in other chapters, with how you see yourself, how you see God, how you see your place in the world. Right? It is quite transformative to get to that place. But you have not eradicated that element of yourself. So it's like somebody who wouldn't keep kosher, and they now keep kosher, they'll see McDonald's, they'll think about McDonald's, it would it would be the place where like even if they're stuck in the airport and they have no food and they're really 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 hungry it's just like it's not even a question right it's not even a question now now I mean I happen to think McDonald's looks disgusting and smells disgusting that's just probably my own experiences I've never eaten it I'm just even walked here. by it what even here I've never been to here but I have passed by non kosher restaurants that seem quite appealing to eat at and like but there's yeah there's this kind of there's this kind of I don't know call it mental block this deep inhibition of like you're right so that that's the transformation of truth that's the transformation of meaning and in that sense the person can say I'm not the same person. Is there like a singular thing that can take you from being talking about how much that's going to meaning, or like is it have to be your whole? So uh, the way so so, so that's the one thing. So the way the Alter writes Tanya, it's a general thing because it, it's not about the particular sin it's about their connection to God. That being said, there is an understanding that that does get refracted through our experience. And so there is a level in which we are a banini regarding certain things and not a banini regarding other things. So while in general, holistically, we would say you're, we're I'm not going to say you personally, but most people are Russia because they are willing on a, on a core level to disregard the relationship with God. If we zoom in, there are places where that relationship with God is much clearer to them and they're not willing to forego it here, even though they're willing to forego it there. So that's... There's an there's a Benini like a element to a person's particular it's experience, in that. right? So and, and this is in general. Anytime you're learning, it's important to realize that when you're talking about things, you have to create clear boundaries. Otherwise, we confuse ourselves. But the actual experience of things are much more um, multifaceted and fluid, um, and so it requires a certain level of maturity to balance between like having rigorous precise definitions of concepts and seeing how those concepts accurately describe elements of our experience but don't fully capture the totality of it. Okay, so this person we're saying he doesn't serve God but he's a Benini. So that means it's, it, it, it's out of the question to do anything wrong. And it goes even further. It's not just not doing anything wrong, it's even doing the stuff that's right. And he brings this example, including the study of Torah. Now, um, I don't know you personally, so the wise thing would be to just play it safe and not say anything too controversial, but I'm not known for my wisdom, at least not in that regard. <laughs> um, so I'm going to just mention this as, we, as, as, a, as a premise for going forward. You're welcome to ask me about it tomorrow if it's really important to you. Um, there is an idea called... Um, um, uh, gender egalitarianism, which basically means that we treat people the same regardless of their gender. That idea does exist. Um, Judaism does not, traditional Judaism does not subscribe to that idea absolutely. There are elements where it does exist, there are elements where it does not exist. So just to be specific, there is a Mishnah, one of the core teachings in Jewish law, which says when it comes to financial matters, there's gender egalitarianism, meaning is there any difference between a man owning property and a woman owning property in Jewish law? No. But wasn't it that like people inherited? Inheritance laws is different because of, of the con Yeah, but there's a, inheritance in Judaism is not regular financial law. It's a separate kind of law altogether. But regular just 
I don't want to go into this right now, but but the basic thing is that inheritance when 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 somebody dies and someone else inherits, it's not considered in Jewish law a transfer of ownership. So it has to do with a whole different set of rules. Okay. But in just basic ownership, if a man owns something, woman owns something, there's no difference between those things. Um, okay. On the other hand, when it comes to other things, there's clearly are differences. Men are obligated certain mitzvahs that women are not obligated in. Okay. One of those mitzvahs is the study of Torah. Men are obligated to study Torah and women are not obligated to study Torah. Now, there is a very important caveat here. In Torah, in, in, in Torah, and this might seem like a bit of a legalism, but, it, but it's actually very important. There's always a question of not are you obligated, but what is the nature of the obligation? I'll explain to you what I mean. Um, if I am obligated... Am I, uh, am I obligated to um, put on tefillin every day? Is it? Yes, yes, okay. That's a biblical command, right? Simple, straightforward, okay. Am I obligated um, to stand up when I dive in Shmonesre? What? When I dive in, yeah, the answer is that is yeah, okay. Now, but, but the thing is, those commandments are those, those those obligations are different. There is no commandment to stand up when you pray. There's no commandment to stand up when you pray. So why what is obligation? Oh, oh, so so that's right. There's a commandment to put on tefillin. There's no commandment to stand up when you pray. There, let's for argument's sake say there's a commandment to pray. It's a bit of a dispute, but let's just go with this commandment to pray. Then there are rules about how prayer should be done. One of the rules is that prayer should be done in a manner in which you, you are addressing God with the formality that you would address somebody if they were really God or a king. And therefore, when addressing God, how should you be given that? How is it, how, what is the rule for how one should pray? In what position? Standing. But you notice how we went from there's a mitzvah to pray and there's obligation to pray as if you're actually standing in front of God, which creates an obligation to stand. But you see how like one thing led to another? Which is not like, put on tefillin, just like there's a mitzvah, put on tefillin. There's an obligation to do it. Which leads to some interesting things. What if you're in a situation where you, where standing would prevent you from having the proper intentions for davening, such as you, you're on a bus. Then what's the halacha in that case? You're required to sit. Required According to almost every halachic authority, you're required to sit. Um, if you can like get yourself up a little bit when you mention the first blessing without distracting yourself, then that's good. But yeah. But don't we sit and stand? So yeah, because the, in the prayers, there's a lot of stuff is that we're not actually directly addressing Hashem. The Shimon Esrei prayer is when we're actually formally addressing Hashem. So I'm just using this example. It's like to say you're obligated without like going into like. So now. Are women obligated to study Torah? And the answer is absolutely women are obligated to study Torah. And there's many reasons why women are obligated to study Torah. Just none of them are the mitzvah of Torah study, which has certain practical ramifications. I'm going to tell you. So, first off, if you have to live as a Jew, and the Torah is the, what teaches us how to live as a Jew, then you need to know Torah in order to know how to live as a Jew, right? So how much Torah does a woman have to therefore know? Very good. So she would need to know all the laws of that would ever be pertinent in her life, 
all the laws are pertinent in the lives of people she interacts with, right? She would need to know all the parts of Torah that provide her with sufficient motivation and devotion, right? That's a lot of Torah. Okay. Does that exclude those certain parts of Torah? Yeah. Yeah. There's certain parts of Torah which wouldn't fit into that category, right? Theoretically, could there reach a point where a woman has mastered all those parts of Torah? Okay, so both in terms of subject matter and in terms of um, time commitment, there is in principle limit to that obligation that you can, you can finish in theory. A man's obligation to Torah is that is an obligation to Torah study in two senses. The man is required to know everything. I would like to repeat that. A man is required to know? It's not impossible because everything has a definition. But it's a very big thing. Everything, everything means the entire written Torah, both Babylonian Jerusalem Talmud, all of the major rabbinic works. It's a lot. All of the all of the all of the major medieval commentators and the codes with their major commentaries. Yeah, that's a lot. But there are people who have done it. I would like to point. There are people who have done it. What? There are people, but if that's the obligation. They're not the only ones. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, I, and people not even not the rabbi who learned all these shaman. Okay, um, but then men also have an unlimited obligation in terms of time, which means unless a man is doing something else which the Torah considers sufficiently worthwhile, what is a man obligated to be doing at, all, every, at every available moment? Studying Torah. So in other words, whereas the woman's obligation is due to some other obligation, therefore she's obligated to study Torah, the man's obligation is direct commandment to study Torah and that actually, I, mean, there's, I forgot to mention, there's a third element, which is quality. If a man could know things in a deeper manner, he's required to know them in a deeper manner. So, yeah, I was gonna ask, I'm assuming it's not just like reading everything. Right, right. About, like, right, so there's discussion, about, there's discussion about how to balance these different priorities. But a man has to know every part of Torah. He has to know it as deeply as possible. And he has to be studying all the time, caveat, when out verses. So that is a very, and that is the mitzvah of Torah study. Then there's the obligation that every Jew has to know Torah because how else are you supposed to live as a Jew without knowing to Torah, both in the practical level and also in the motivational level, okay? So what means now is there's a very interesting thing, which is what kind of person, and this is gonna be different, this is gonna be different for a man and a woman, what kind of person is a Bainani if they're a man as opposed to a woman? They're a person who's gonna be doing what all the time? Learning Torah. Learning Torah. Unless, yes. So somebody doesn't learn Torah all the time, not. Could not be a Bainani if they're a man. Because the man is under a... Okay, I'm going to go describe that in a second. But if it's a woman, the fact that she's not learning Torah all the time, does that necessarily mean she's not a Bainani? No. No, okay. So there is a... And we're going to, I want to point out that this chapter is written... Okay, and I'm going to I'll talk about this in a second. It's written to a male audience. Okay? Does that mean everything in the chapter is directed only at men? No. No, okay. What I want to do is I want to point out which things here are unique to men because of this obligation for Torah study, as we look at the chapter, and which things are going to be general, okay? I do not want to get into the question of is it harder for a man to be a Bainini or a woman to be a Bainini, um, because A, I think it's a stupid argument. I, I don't think there's, a, there's any value in coming to that conclusion. And B, um, I think that, that um, difficulty is something that is very individual. And so there will definitely be a man that finds his challenges in life more difficult than a woman. And there's a woman who finds her challenges in life more difficult than a man. And I don't think it, like, it, 
because Judaism is very much about our individual service of God, it doesn't really make sense to speak about whose challenges are harder. Um, and just in general, like like the conversation, like even between two people, like is my life harder, is your life harder, is God's man, it, it, it doesn't lead to anywhere for constructive because it's very much a, that indiv- person's individual life as has been you know, authored to them by God and as they play a role in it. But I do think it's important to understand that there are differences in, ta- in, in, in what it means to be a baby. So practically speaking, um, there are three categories of activities. There's Torah study, or sorry, four categories of activities. There's Torah study, um, there's mitzvahs, there's what's called in Hebrew Yishuv Ha'olam. Yishuv Ha'olam means settling the land. Yud Shin Vav Vez. Next word Ha'olam Hey Ayin Vav Lamid Final Yishuv Ha'olam. Okay. And then the last activity is called um, Chachma, or wisdom. The first one is Torah study. The second category is mitzvahs. The third category is Yishuv Oilam, settling the land, settling the yeah. And the third, final category is Chachma, wisdom. Okay, so I'm going to give just some examples of everything. Torah study means you take Torah texts or a living Torah teacher, and you are involved in understanding, remembering, retaining, reading what those texts or sayings mean. Right? So what we're doing right now is Torah study. Okay. Then there's mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are all the things that the Torah says you should do. So lighting Shabbos candles, making Kiddush, right? These are all mitzvahs. Um, Yeshiva Oilam are the things that people need to do in order for society to flourish. If people don't go to work, what will happen? Yeah. If people don't go to sleep, people don't eat. If people don't spend time with their family members or community members, if people do not, um, you know, all these types of activities, right? It, it's very clear that 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 the person as an individual, ultimately society, will break down if people don't do these things, okay? Um, and then you have chachma, wisdom. So this would be like, say, studying something like physics or math or medicine or something like that, right? Those intellectual pursuits. Okay. Are there activities outside of these four things? Yeah. Sure there are. What? Well, give me an example of something that doesn't... Art. So art could fit into a few different of these activities. For instance, could art be understood in the context of you? Not, not necessarily. Could art be in the context of Yeshiva of settling the land? For instance, art which is um, therapeutic or communal building or things like that. That kind of art could be. Um, you could also have art which is done to beautify a mitzvah, such as like, you know, designing a show properly, right? The, the art... But not all art would fit into this into one of these categories, right? Okay, what else would not fit necessarily into one of these categories? Things just for fun. Now, 
if if there's if the fun is serving like a real constructive purpose, right? Like people really do need to relax. People do need to have bonding experiences. Fine, but we all are aware of the notion of doing things just for the entertainment value, just for the fun of it, right? Okay. What? Right. So you're seeing you're seeing there that there is this other realm of stuff. Um, now, from the perspective of the Torah, everything a person does should fit into one of these four categories. Emphasis on the word should. You hear the word should? Should. Should. If you're a man, you're obligated that it fits into one of these four categories. Why? Right. Why? Because since men have this obligation of Torah study, anytime they're not in one of the other three categories, which are legitimate, whenever they're legitimate, by default, if they're not studying Torah, what are they doing? They're sinning. In other words, if I have an obligation to do something and I fail to do my, my obligation, then I'm doing, then I'm sinning. If so, what ends up happening is that there's there's this um, there's disparity that while the Torah thinks as in terms of a, on a kind of a value, what should a person be encouraged to be spending their time in is these things because these four things all have value, and things out there these four things don't really have value. Is a person sinning by going outside of these things? Well, that depends. Mitzvahs, you're not always obligated to do mitzvahs, right? Mitzvahs come at specific times, right? So you can have no mitzvahs and you might not have any thing productive to do because I don't know, the work is the work is done for the day, right? You know, you finished all of the things that you can do today to make life productive and useful and functional, okay? And you're not particularly interested or have access to like, I don't know, studying chemistry or whatever. So is it fine to just sit around and schmooze and just, you know, pass the time? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, if you, but if you're a man, what do you have sitting over your head the whole time? An obligation. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's true. You may be tied together, but an obligation, an obligation to study Torah. That is, yes. There's an obligation to study Torah. And so if he fails to study Torah, then what is he doing? Sinning. Sinning. Okay. Which means that... No, so so again, if it's, if it's needed for bonding for other people, then it goes into that category of settling the earth, and it's perfectly fine. And like waiting online in the airport. But where's your destination? Like, where are you? So, so, so there, are different, there are people who take different approaches to these things, okay? Um, I'm going to give you the Hasidic approach to these things. The Hasidic approach to these things is someone who's afraid of God forbid, I might be wasting a time of Torah study is not what God intended. Um, what God intended is that men should feel so devoted to Torah study that when they have nothing else pressing to do, what are they doing? And so even if they're walking down the street and nothing is preoccupying them at the time, they're either thinking or reciting. Right. Because now, now there is another approach that some people take, which is the idea like you have to be afraid of possibly missing a moment of Torah study, um, which is a little. The way I like to think about it is like this: um, I remember being a kid and really into certain things that you know young people are into. Um, so I had a certain video games that I really like to play, and if you have a video game you like to play. Um, then your attitude is that unless I'm dragged and I have to do something else, right, what I'm going to do? And if I can't have access to the video game at the moment, what are you thinking about? 
Right? And so that's the kind of, the Torah is obligating men to have that level of commitment to the act of Torah study. Does the Torah obligate women to that? No. Why? That's not relevant for right now. But it's important to realize that, so while we say women are obligated to Torah study, because the obligation comes from these other things, right? The obligation to know what to do, the obligation to be motivated, to be enthusiastic about your Judaism, to be a good example to other people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, it is not if she's not studying Torah when she has the opportunity, all of a sudden she's doing something sinful. Maybe she's doing something less desirable, but not inherently sinful. And so there is this kind of extremeness to a male bainini that doesn't exist in a female bainini. And I don't, I don't want to say that it's harder or it's easier, it's different. In that there's kind of a simple way to tell about a man if he's a bainini or not, which is? That's right. And if what he does in his free time is not Torah study, not a bainini. Which is not okay. Now, the emphasis here is free time, right? What? Some people just don't like to kind of just sit and study and learn. They just can't comprehend the way other people can. So, so can they compensate for that with like working harder, but being having money to like give to charity? Yes. They, so, 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 yes, but then they have two things. One, they, they can't exempt themselves from Torah study, number one. They still have to study Torah, but they can adjust the ratio of how much time they have. They can just make it that they have less free time. They just like read it. Okay, then the other thing is that since the obligation of Torah study is, an, is very, also very interesting, it's unlike other obligations, which I gave you the maximum, but there's also the minimum. The minimum level of Torah study for a man is, because again, this is because there's a mitzvah of Torah study. So it has a maximum, but it also has a minimum. And the minimum is one verse of the written Torah in the morning and one verse of the written Torah in the evening, even if you don't understand it. So if the man recites the Shema in the morning, the Shema in the evening, and that is all he is capable of, this is key. The minimum is based on the minimum is based on capability. If that's literally all he's capable of, he's not he's fulfilled the mitzvah. But if he's capable of more, then he's required to do. And does the man have the freedom to adjust his schedule so he has more or less free time? So he becomes obligated to more or less story? Yes, he does. But that, that creates a whole different um, mode of bainini, which in a certain sense is very externally measurable. That is not necessarily true if you took away that obligation for Torah study, because Life is more fluid than that. Okay, so I, I just and that's going to when he starts describing a bainani who's not necessarily serving God and describes certain preconditions and all that. Not necessarily everything of that would have to be in a woman who's a bainani, because they don't have that that the, the the studious involvement in Torah study as a as a fundamental feature of your daily living is not is not an essential ingredient to a woman's um, Judaism. And I want to be clear what I mean. I don't mean to say that it's not important. I mean to say it's not essential. What's the difference between important and essential? If a man doesn't study Torah, then he is casting off one of the mitzvahs. If a woman doesn't study Torah, what is going to end up happening? She will either be ignorant of what she needs to do or she will feel disenchanted from her Judaism and so therefore it becomes important for a woman to know as much as she needs to know. And by the way, that does mean, what comes out of this, by the way, is certain women are technically obligated to learn more Torah than certain men. Why? Well, let's think, about, let's think about a man who is very busy and very simple-minded. How much Torah is he required to learn in his mitzvah Torah study? Yeah. On the other hand, you have a woman who lives an upper-middle-class lifestyle. She is very well-educated. Um, she's mature. She's a developed human being. Um, she's very proactive. She has a strong sense of personal autonomy. The only way she is going to be fully engaged in her Judaism is with a tremendous amount of Torah study. Right? 
and since she is required to, they know all the halachas that she can know that are relevant, and she's required to have as much enthusiasm and belief in God and the purpose of Judaism and Torah, the Jewish people and all of that, well, then she's probably going to, those obligations create on her maybe a stronger obligation or a larger obligation than that man might have. But it's just, it, what it does mean is that if she comes to a place where she's like, I have enough, she can genuinely say, I have enough Torah study, I'm moving on to this other thing, or I'm taking a break or something like that, in a way that a man doesn't have that same kind of a luxury. Um, now, and again, that just creates a difference, and it's important to keep that in mind when we go on describing how someone could be a Bainani without necessarily serving God. For a man, it has you have to you have to account for how you get that level of studiousness with a woman. You don't have to account for that. Are there guidelines brought down when it comes to Shabbat or like? No, I mean these are one of these things that like you um you need people who are God fearing and familiar with the ways of the society to, um, and knowledgeable in our traditions to make judgment calls about what really is and what really isn't. You know, I I will I will tell you like this. I will tell you this. If you grow up in North America, taking your child um, to an amusement park, you know, assuming that there's no immodest, you know, just in general, from time to time as like an activity, can definitely be understood as a Yishu Ha'olam type of a thing. If you grew up in Mayasharim, it wouldn't be understood that way, but that has a lot to do with because once something is experienced certain way in a culture, there's a sense of deprivation, which creates strains on families and so these things become very dependent on time and place and economics and all these other things. There's, that's why, then that's why there's not specific rules about these things. Um, you know, are you depriving somebody if they if if, if they don't have a pillow at night? I didn't ask you. I didn't ask you. I didn't ask you if you're. If, if I didn't ask you if, if if you need it. I'm asking you. Is that a kind of a deprivation? Not a big deprivation. Well, I, I would say like this. Most people, if they came to a hotel room and there was no pillow, they would feel like there's something missing. If most people, if they were staying in someone's house and they were offered a mattress with no pillow, they would feel a little bit awkward because they should I ask for the pillow? Should I not ask for the pillow, right? Um, we might think it a bit strange if we went to someone's house and we saw the parents weren't giving the children pillows to sleep. Now, is it like the end of the world? Can you sleep without a pillow? Yeah. Yes. But... We live in an affluent enough society that we've developed this sense that that's how we sleep, and so there seems to be something. Okay. By the way, this has, this has ramifications in Jewish law also, just parenthetically. There's obligations to support people, different kinds of obligations, like tzedakah, parents supporting children, husbands required to provide financial support to their wife. What sets the level of those things has a lot to do with... That's right. For instance, um, in Jewish law, if... Um, People live in a middle-class lifestyle and say in the United States where most people in the middle class have a car, yes? Yeah. That would mean that, do most people in the middle class have two cars? Most people have two? It depends where you live. It does depend where you live, right? So if you lived in a community where most people have two cars, um, your husband required to make sure that there are two cars. That's his financial responsibility. But if you live in a community where most people have one car, yeah, because there's the sense, there's a there's the basic sense that the obligation of the man to support his wife is predicated on what is considered to be. I'll tell you this: in real life, if you have to, if in your marriage you have to come down to what are my legal obligations, like 
the, the relationship is broken down significantly. But it is important that it is important is something I, I, I tell men like, like when you're getting married, like you are accepting upon yourself this basic notion, like there's certain responsibilities. Um, it doesn't, it, it, yeah, there's, there's, there's what's considered to be the societal norm. And obviously there's a lot more details, I'm not going into it. It also shows up in the rules of tzedakah. Nobody, nobody in, in, in Talmudic times collected tzedakah if they were as wealthy as the poor people nowadays. Do you know how much, you, the rule was if you could afford 14 meals a week, how much is 14, how, what is 14 meals? Two a day, right? What's a meal? Bread. A meal's bread. How much bread? Bread, what? what? Not a little, no. So what they did is they had, they had, they had, they had loaves of bread that were about, they had loaves of bread that were about this big and you get half of this in the morning and the other half at nighttime with, I don't know, a little bit of hummus or olive oil. If you could afford that, you're not entitled to collect tzedakah. Nowadays, if that's all a person can afford to eat, of course they're entitled to collect tzedakah. Why? What? No, I, I just think it's very important to, to realize that there are there are things in Judaism which don't change on societal level. Like there's certain things when it, certain like you know we, we we don't say that like for instance like the bread being the main part of the meal we didn't change that just because just because we no longer live that way. And so when we're talking about these types of things, it's it's just important to realize that these 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 um, differences occur. Okay, so. You have this person who's a Bainini, right? But they're not serving God. Now, in the male version of that, what does that mean they're doing at every free moment? Studying Torah. Studying Torah as diligently as is required by the law. Now, I would think if I found somebody who's studying Torah diligently at every free opportunity, it looks pretty much that they're serving God. I mean, like, like they must be pretty dedicated. And yet the altar is establishing that such a person may not in fact be serving God at all. Now I want us to stop here and think about this. Do you think this, this kind of way of looking at things goes over well amongst the rabbinic elite and the, and the Talmudic sages? Not the sages of the Talmud, but people who study Talmud all day. You got a guy, he's sitting and studying Torah all day and he's like very serious about it. And he feels that he is like, you know, what does he feel like? That he's, he's a holy man. And then comes along someone and says, well, actually, you might not be serving God at all. No, no, because then you're, no, 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 no. So, so again, this is within the context of your spare time. So is it like, like you said, like you're not really clear, you're just doing it? Well, the thing is with learning, the thing is with learning, you can't really do it that way. We're going to get to the intention, but before we get to the, the, the explanation of how this works, I just think it's important to realize, and you pointed out, learning is not something you can just do by rote, unless you're very simple-minded. So you have a person who's very engaged, very dedicated, very serious. Maybe Well, I want to just before you get that, like why this is good. I want you to appreciate that this is a. There are some things that that maybe are so resonant that you don't realize that there's all, they're also controversial. There is a very strong culture in Judaism of doing more mitzvahs, learning more Torah means that you are a greater servant of God. 
And what the Alter Rebbe has just established is you have a person who you can find no flaw in their conduct, even on this very difficult thing of the obligation to study Torah at all, at all available opportunities. And yet, despite that you can't find any flaw, you're not serving God. That is, that, that, you know, from, 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 from a place where you're focused on individual growth, that doesn't sound so controversial, but from a place where you have a whole society arranged around scholarly elites who lead the community, that's very controversial. That undermines things. Okay? Um, there, there was, there's a story of the Alter but I don't remember the exact details of the story, but it's something goes like this, is that um, back in, in, um, in Eastern Europe, actually this is, at some point is Western Europe also, the, the way it was that if you were very scholarly, um, you either married the daughter of a Torah scholar or you married the daughter of a rich man. That's the way it went. So you created this, this elite. And then what would happen is the father-in-law would support the son-in-law and the son-in-law would continue to study full-time and only go start working 10, 15, 20 years later. Okay. Um, so the story goes that one of these father-in-laws who was supporting his son-in-law noticed that his son-in-law, after he became a chassid and a father of the Alter Rebbe, he stopped studying so much. And he came to the Alter Rebbe and he complained. He said, I'm not opposed to your, the, the Hasidic movement or anything, but I just see my son-in-law got involved and now he's studying plus Torah. And the Alter Rebbe's response was, he's studying more Torah. And he says, my, my son-in-law used to, I'm just, he used to study 18 hours a day and now he studies two hours a day. So I'm sorry, it's not, it's a lot less. And so the Alter Rebbe said, well, it used to be that he studied 10 hours so that you would support him. And then he studied another six hours to impress all the other people in his social circle. And then he studied another hour because he afraid your, was afraid your wife was checking up on him because she would check up and make sure he's really studying. And then one other hour because there was a cat that used to hang around in the courtyard. And when the cat would come by, he thought it was, he thought it was your wife, his mother-in-law. And so he studied for one extra hour until the cat went away. <laughs> The idea was that he might be diligently studying, but nothing of what he's doing has anything to do with God. And now he might be studying less. But he's studying more. But there's something qualitative about it that makes it worth more. Now that's that's what I want you to understand is that that, that this idea of saying when you see someone who's doing everything right and saying, ah, but you're not really serving God, there's something dangerous in that idea. And I want everyone to, before we go into the explanation, I want everyone to understand that, that it is a dangerous idea because you, you run the risk of invalidating all the right things people are doing. So I'm challenging all these No. people? No. No. So we're talking about like a regular person? No, no, we're talking, no, we're, 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 let me take a step back. I thought you were asking, are we like, 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 um, challenging in the sense of that Challenging problems in the right word. Yeah, that's right. Challenging talking about. Yeah, we're talking about a lot of these great people. And so, so the thing is, the thing is, the, the, the thing is, Hasidus requires a kind of emotional maturity that children don't have. Children get stuck very much in, if something is being criticized, then what does that mean? Bad. It's bad. Children have a very hard time saying, this is good, and I'm nonetheless critiquing it. Um, in, in the Talmud, there's an interesting phenomenon. Let's say you have two views in the Talmud. One view 
is criticized by the Talmud, constantly attacked and critiqued, and the other view is just accepted and, and not discussed. Which view do we follow in practice? The view that is just accepted as it or the view that is criticized and critiqued? What do you think? The Talmud often presents two views of things. One view is just, this is the view. Rabbi so-and-so said X, but then Rabbi, the other rabbi said Y. He said, oh, well, we've got problems with Y. And then goes and attack, and we attack, and we have this problem, we have that problem. Which view do we follow? The view that's just accepted or the view that's attacked? The, the actual answer is the view that's attacked. The one that's being attacked. Assuming that we can salvage it in any way, why are we attacking that view? Why are we criticizing the view? Right, because there's a sense that this view is where what we should be following, and we really want to examine and make sure we have a thorough, rigorous, deep understanding. We're not attacking for the sense of delegitimizing it. We're attacking it for the sense of there's something that we want to get bring out of this. I mean, okay, it's nice, but we're not. We don't. We don't feel so compelled by it. So, and this is this is the thing, right? If, if you're saying, okay, there's a person and they're devout and they're studying, doing all the mitzvahs, why are you attacking them for not serving God? And the answer is not because we're trying to undermine the quantity of Torah observance. Right? That story is, is, is meant to illustrate a point, but that story shouldn't be taken as the end all and be all of things. What's meant to be understood is that we're critiquing this not because, because we want to bring something more out into that context. We want to take the person who's living as they should and doing all the right things and introduce into that the depth of service of God, not to critique and saying, you're not serving God, and so then to delegitimize the whole enterprise. But the thing is, like, if you go around telling like an immature person, oh, this great scholar or this devout woman is not really serving God because it's not really coming from the place of service, then all that they hear is that they're a fraud. And that's not the message. Okay? The, 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 there's, a, there's, a, there's an important, there's the, the one, one, of the, the, one of the things that the Alter Rebbe actually, it's not in the Tanya, but one of, you can see allusions to it where he keeps emphasizing the value of Torah study. He keeps saying Torah study compares to everything, Torah study compares to everything. But there's one of the things that we know from, from oral traditions, the Alter Rebbe was very insistent that people don't go around delegitimizing people who don't have these, this approach. Because it's not like when you miss these these fundamental truths, somehow the whole thing is wrong. Some of the whole thing is hypocritical. Some of the whole thing is garbage. It's not true. And you have to be very careful about that. Um, it's, 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 it's an issue. On any time we criticize something, we have to be careful. Are we criticizing it because it's fundamentally wrong? Or are we criticizing it because it is a value and we want to bring out a deeper value? We want, to, we want to bring out a deeper beauty in it. He's not criticizing the person who's devout and does no wrong and spends all the time Torah study because that's that's hypocritical or that's shallow or no he's saying is it's missing something and if you can see that it's missing something then we want to bring that thing out not to delegitimize now in that transition process though sometimes there's a concept in sociology called the J curve you know what a J curve is a J curve is what's known in Hasidus as Yuridatsarachliya descent for the sake of an ascent you start out over here and you want to get here but you can't go like this. The only way to go is you have to first go down and then go up. It looks like a jet. This is a problem. Let's say you have a dictatorship and you want to turn it into a democracy. Let's assume dictatorships are not as good as democracies for argument's sake. How does that work? Do you just progress from dictatorship to democracy? 
know, you generally go from dictatorship down to some kind of anarchy or being conquered by somebody else and society completely breaks down and then you rebuild up to the democracy. Right, so it could be, and that's what Alfred was getting at, is that it could be that your son-in-law, as he's letting go, as he's trying to go from here to there, he's letting go of things, but not because he's genuinely letting go. He's trying to get back to the same amount of learning, but coming from a better place. And in that process, there may be a period where the, where the learning goes down. Right, right, right. But not because we want to get rid of the good things that were there before, like using the example of a dictatorship. I don't mean dictatorship is a good thing, but our, our two sages say you should pray for the welfare of the government because without it, people will swallow each other alive. And they're referring to the Roman Empire, which was not known to be particularly nice to the Jewish people. But they were saying, Roman Empire, as bad as it is, anarchy is worse. And yet, sometimes you have to go into that stage to get out the other side. And, and this is a process of growth. You see, I mean, this is what teenagers are all about, right? There's a stability of being a child. And to go to the stability of adulthood, you have to kind of dismantle things. And that creates all sorts of uncomfortable things. But the thing is, we're not trying to shed stuff and just get rid of it because it's bad. We're trying to build. And the, the, so the, in ideal, you're going from here to here, in practice, it may end up looking like that, where you go down and then go back up higher. So that's what you have. So the way he's going to present it is you have this person who's doing everything right and they're devout and they're studious and da, 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 and we're going to critique what's missing. And then you can think you're just going to introduce what's missing. But in reality, you can't just introduce what's missing. Sometimes you have to let go a little bit about the old pattern in order to reintroduce the good thing and build back up again. Okay. So so this this has to be taken with that kind of maturity of that kind of um, you know, wisdom, maybe some guidance and how to apply this in life because it's not just like, oh, this is bad, throw it out or you can just easily build on what you have. There's, you're trying to build on what you have but there's some element of dismantling. Okay. The reason he is referred to as one who does not serve Hashem, to serve him, is that he does not wage any battle against his evil disposition in order to vanquish it by means of the divine light that irradiates the divine soul whose abode is in the brain, which predominates over the heart, as explained above. Why is this person not serving God? What does the text say? What is, the, what is missing? What is missing? There's this person, they're doing everything right. He does not have a battle. Okay. So clearly serving God means having a battle. But if you look in the text, he actually makes the battle a very specific battle. What is the battle that he describes? Um, against his evil disposition. Okay. How is he supposed to fight that battle? That's not what it says. Okay. Which he explained above, but we're going to... If I have a battle, is that necessarily serving God? No. So let's say I really don't want to learn. I don't want to learn Torah. But I know that if I don't learn Torah, that I'm going to feel guilty afterwards. I'm going to feel guilty that I wasted my day. And I use that to get me to learn the Torah. Am I serving God when I learn Torah? What does the text imply?
Huh? Yes. Why? What is in the brain? What does the text say? What? Well, I'm asking whether somebody who doesn't want to do what they're supposed to do, but does it because otherwise they feel guilty later. Is that kind of internal struggle, the battle being described in the time? Your divine soul is in the brain. Your divine soul is in the brain. Now, does that sound like my divine... Does that... And by the way, does that sound like the divine light that irradiates my divine soul is overcoming my evil inclination when I'm studying Torah now so I don't feel guilty later? Yes and no. Why yes and why no? Because you can either say the guilt is coming from this, like, knowing that you have this attachment to God and, like, having... The guilt is a step two to step one, or it's, like, just bad and self-centered and, like, I feel better when you think that's a fair distinction to make? That some guilt comes from knowing that we're not acting in accordance with our relationship with God and that's what the guilt is about? Or the guilt is just like a kind of egotism? That there's two kinds of guilt? I mean, why else would you feel guilt? It's because of your relationship with God. Well, I don't know. People are acculturated in all sorts of values that they don't necessarily turn into like a sense of personal relationship with God, right? For instance, let me, let me ask you the following question. Let's say you have somebody who keeps delaying um, getting some things done. And they don't actually really want to do these things, but they know if they don't do these things, then it's just irresponsible, and then they're going to like have negative consequences, and the person then they're going to feel like that they, they, they can't take care of themselves, not a mature adult, and so like... They use that to like guilt themselves into just like getting themselves off the couch and doing it. Does it really matter what those things are? Or is that just like a basic thing that a person doesn't want to be a loser? It's not. It's not really anything to do with God and their divine soul, right? So, if you're raised or whatever reason and bought into certain values of of Torah study and mitzvah observance, that could just be that clothed, right? You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like he's just, now, I want to be clear. If I'm talking about someone else, I should take the approach that's coming from their godly soul. Their godly soul is trying to get through the best way it can. This is very important that when we look at other people, we should always try and see them in as positive light as possible. And there's a very clear reason for that, which is, can you change another person by deciding that that person needs to be better? No. But can you change yourself by deciding that you need to be better? So therefore, it's not an appropriate thing to see the negativity in a person when you have the opportunity to see the same thing in a positive light. Assuming it's legitimate. There's no point in like making stuff up that's obviously ludicrous. But if we believe deep down every Jew has a godly soul, then maybe the feelings of guilt are ultimately coming from there, and that's the godly soul's way of communicating because the person is so insensitive. And Okay, that's a fine thing to say about someone else. But if I'm going to start thinking about it myself, then I can. Then that just ends up becoming a justification going to stay in that place. Now, if on the other end, that train of thought changes into, well, then, well, what is so important about my connection to God that my godly soul is worried about? It's not the guilt. And, that from, and I develop that place, then we're more in line with what the Tanya is saying. What he's saying is that this battle is the battle of the awareness that I have of the importance of relationship with God versus my evil inclination. 
There's other battles we have in life, but they're not this. It, he's calling it service of God when it's my awareness of God versus what I would otherwise be doing. So remember what I said yesterday that when you that, that, that when we're actively involved is when there's resistance. Okay. So I need the evil inclination here so that there's the resistance that I get actively involved, right? But it's not service of God unless my involvement is in prioritizing my connection to Him. If that's not what it's about, it might be a battle, it might be a struggle, it might be actively involved, but it's not necessarily going to be service of Him. Because in order for it to mean that I am doing something for somebody else, it needs to be that I'm actually doing it and it's really for them. So if I'm. So I have, to, I have to have both elements at play. There has to be the struggle, but it has to be that this, the way I'm waging that struggle is built on my awareness of the importance of connection to Hashem, as he puts it, the divine light irradiating the godly soul. I have an answer. Should I give my answer and then you'll give your question? Okay. Freedom. That wasn't the answer to your question? I thought you were going to ask, what is the holiday of Pesach about? But okay, I was wrong. No, what's your question? So, like, let's say, let's say we're going to something, like, with this, like, so, like, um, let's say somebody feels guilty for an office experience, uh-huh. not because they get a connection with Hashem, but because of like, a social, societal construct, uh-huh. or society enforcing or pushing, whatever, I said, the only reason I end up, like, following those things is because society is because they're walking out and they're getting judgment from their neighbors, they're not doing it actually to fulfill. So what's the question? So I'm saying, like, should they even be doing like... Oh, remember what we just said about Torah study? Are we trying to devalue the act? Are we criticizing? We're not devaluing the act. In other words, the value of dressing... Would you want my honest opinion? Yeah. Okay. My honest honest opinion is all things being equal, which they're often not, if the question is being guilted into doing the right thing or not doing the right thing, you should be guilted into doing the right thing. You should? Yes. Now, that's all things being equal. Now, the reason why it's all things not being equal is because in our societies, um, you run the risk that that is, that is only effective in the short term. In traditional societies, it's actually very effective. A traditional societies is, is a society where, where there's, people don't have a notion of the individual self outside of the society, so you can guilt people into doing things. I'm not saying it's ideal. I'm just saying it works. Right, and so so it's right. So in a in, in a modern postmodern societies where people have a strong notion of individualism, it the reason why I don't think you should get there, there's I all things being equal. The reason why I don't think you should do it is not because there's some ethical problem of guilting someone into the right behavior. It's just because they'll end up not working. That you end up getting the person to do the right behavior temporarily, and as their sense of individually strengthens and their sense of options in the wider world becomes clearer to them, they will end up leaving the right behavior behind. And so you need a different strategy. Now, the other thing is also, if you have a choice between that and another approach, the other approach is intrinsically going to be more valuable. But but just the question of, does the fact that, you know, if something is truly the proper behavior, um, Setting, again, aside the, the pragmatic question, setting aside are there better approaches? Is there something ethically wrong with guilting someone into proper behavior as opposed to them engaging in improper behavior? I think Judaism is pretty clear that guilting people into proper behavior is perfectly fine. It almost feels like 
cheating somebody in a way out of their life, it's like cheating them with their emotion of guilt. It's like manipulating them. Well, the, the, but, it come, but, it, but it comes down to it comes down to a very important question, which is it takes us outside the context of Tanya, per se, but I think is an important question in Judaism, which is, is the value of what we do, the way it, the fact that it expresses our values and beliefs. Now that is an idea that exists. It's a very popular idea. It comes from a few different sources. Um, part of it has to do with Protestant Christianity. Part of it has to do with the Enlightenment. Part of it has to do with the Renaissance, but it's not a Jewish idea that 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 the value of doing is predicated on intent. There are two things in Judaism where where where, where we where, where that is true. There are two areas in Judaism where if you're not doing it for the right reasons, then you might as well not do it. Which ones are they? Prayer and sacrifice. That the, the prophets, the prophets, all the time are saying, if you are not going to bring, if you're going to bring, if you're going to bring sacrifices to the temple just because you're supposed to, but you're not, but you're, but you're not really into it, right? And you think you can just like do the right thing, get your check mark. The prophets rail against that. So there is this notion that there is a point at which, like, if you're just going to do it because that's the thing that people do, then don't bring sacrifices. In fact, that's one of the explanations why God got rid of the temple because if we're not going to use it properly. Took it away, and prayer is a similar thing, um, where the code of Jewish law says that you're not really spo- you're not supposed to pray out of a sense of obligation. You're supposed to be able to pray because you need because you have come to recognition that, that you need to beseech God for your needs. I feel like so many people pray out of obligation. Like in schools, every morning we have the dominance of kids. It's like yeah, so there's an interesting there's an interesting question about how to. There's a concept that I think of like faking it and like trying harder. There's a question, there's a, there's a very complicated question when it comes to prayer. One second. There's a, there's a question, there's a question that comes when it comes to prayer because there is, there is a whole question like if you're not really sincere in your praying and you're just saying words, are you even praying? Like that becomes an interesting question in halacha and how to deal with that. The concern is that if we don't make people pray daily, then they just the practice stops and they never come back to it at all. It's a complicated question. But taking those two things aside, like there's just no notion in Judaism that if like you're not really into Shabbos and you've just been guilted into Shabbos or the only reason you're keeping Shabbos is because like you live back in biblical times and you're afraid to get getting stoned to death for violating Shabbos, that somehow your Shabbos observance has become, you know, worthless. That's just not true. I mean, and, and if we think about this, in, 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 if we take it outside the context of religion, we're familiar with this idea, right? Um, taking care of your small children is intrinsically valuable regardless of how you feel about it. Yes? Like, you have children. Yeah. They need to be fed. They need to be taken care of, right? And if, and if, and if really, really, really the situation was, again, let's take, set aside the pragmatism, because, again, in modern science, guilt does, is not the most effective way. But if a person could be guilted into taking care of their child rather than abandoning them, and that was, like, really, it was that black and white, there was the two options, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> I don't care that you're not into it. But that's but that's that's what I'm saying. That's that's the perspective that Chassidus is adding, but not undermining. That goes back to that J curve thing. That's Chassidus is not coming and saying, "Oh, you shouldn't do the mitzvah." Chassidus is coming and saying that if you've gotten to this place where you just think the mitzvah, it's pointless from a certain perspective. It's not. Is it awakening anything? One second. It's pointless from a certain perspective. 
Does it do anything for you to help your soul to do something when you have literally zero connection to doing it? And you're just well, doing what's that? It does, does it have any for your soul? Sure, it helps your soul. Does it help you have a connection to God? Is a separate question. Those are two different things. Like there, there's a lot of there's a for instance there's a notion that we have a soul, and I don't mean the soul in time here, although it is the same soul. I just mean like you have a soul in the religious sense of the word, which means like person dies, and they have a soul, and if they did a lot of sins. It's not going to be good for their soul. And if they did a lot of bits, it'll be better for their soul. And like how you then want to frame that in terms of reward and punishment or natural consequence. And like, that's already a second point. And so absolutely. In fact, Alter later on discusses the value of doing mitzvahs, even when you're completely unaware of its effect on you, because it does have a very powerful effect on the soul and has a very powerful effect on the world. But the Tanya is dealing with the level of the living human being who's Jewish trying to relate to God through, this, through Judaism. And on that level, just dry doing mitzvahs doesn't do anything for you. I mean, you don't need the Tanya to tell you that. You can feel that. What he's kind of legitimizing you, what Altar is doing is legitimizing that there is truth to your experience, that a dry doing something just because you're supposed to doesn't really connect you. It's like, yeah, on, on, on the level we're talking about, it really doesn't connect you. Does that invalidate the act of the mitzvah? No. Altar goes on to say the it has tremendous valuable acts for the world, for your soul. But as a living, conscious human being on earth who's trying to have a relationship with God, that's separate. That might not do anything for you. It would be like, you're alive, but you're not. Like, yeah. I mean, there's the, the, discussions about later on about, about, about this. But if you're asking usually a basic Judaism question, which I think if we're going back to it, it's important to have the sense that he's not coming to undermine the basic Judaism thing. It's not, there are things in Judaism that really don't fit with the ancient world. They don't fit with the medieval world. They only make sense in the modern world or in a, or in a postmodern world. And there are things in Judaism that don't make sense in the modern or postmodern world. Like, you know, the, 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 notion, the notion that every human being um, is fundamentally equal before God does not make sense in, in, in the ancient world. It doesn't make sense in the modern, in, in the medieval world. It, I mean, most modern postmodern people think that that makes intuitive sense, of course. But they have this other notion that, what do you mean? There's value to your ritual act simply because it was ordained by God. And, it, and that must mean it has value. Whatever that value is, I don't know what it means. Um, is something that I think we're very uncomfortable with because we like to think of religion as a byproduct of personal growth or an aspect of spirit, personal spiritual development. And, while, and, and from Judaism's point, it's reversed. There's religion is being in a covenant with God and, and following you know, what that means. And there is a spiritual aspect. There is a personal growth aspect. There's a moral aspect. And different approaches to Judaism place those in different relations with each other. And Hasidus is trying to get at that deep spiritual connection in a very, as I said before at the beginning of the class, a very experiential way. And from that perspective, something is truly missing in the misobservance if you're doing them out of rote or out of guilt or out of, yeah. But it doesn't follow from that that the mitzvah itself has lost all value in any perspective such that, so that when you ask the question, like outside of the context of Hasidus, is that the right way to guilt people into doing mitzvahs? So you have to ask yourself, like, what are you asking? Are you asking a ethical question or pragmatic question? If it's a pragmatic question, the answer is in the modern world, absolutely not. It's, it's, it's going to almost never work. There may be a little room here and there around the margins, but it's not going to work long term. 
but if you if you're asking as an ethical matter, I mean, I think guilty. I, we can all think of things that are objectively important beyond how the person feels about it. That if the only way to get them to comply is to guilt them into it, we're like, then that's that's what we should do. Um, but it, the the practicalities of that kind of overshadow that, and, and therefore it doesn't really work. Um, the minute you have a sense that you are an individual and you can leave your society, move to a different society, if that society wants you to stay, has to treat the whole question differently. You see what I'm saying? Like that, and, and yeah, so like, um, you know, and then there's also slightly different notions of guilt, right? Are you using the uncomfortableness of guilt itself as the main motivating thing, or using the fact that the guilt exists as an indication to a deeper part of yourself, right? Those are, right? That second thing might be more, might, might still be a pr effective method. So, um, but in context of this kind of living relationship where we can say you as a person are serving God, he's going to see later on that all of say the fact that you have a soul and your soul loves God doesn't count as service of God. You as a person have to really be prioritizing your relationship with God, the truth of God that you know that that is clear to you over whatever resistance you're facing. And this person isn't doing that. Now, the reason they're not doing that is because there's no resistance, as we're going to talk about. But I want to point out, you could also not be doing it for a different reason, not because you're not facing resistance, but because you're, face, you're facing that resistance from a different perspective. You're, 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 you're doing it because you want to fit in. You're doing it because you feel guilty. You're doing it for these other things. Um, I just want to read to you something that the, the Altarba writes. He doesn't write it here in Tanya. Um, this is the kind of thing that you would not expect a rabbi from the 18th century to say, what he says. And with this, we'll end the topic for today. He writes like this. He says, and we're going to see this later on. He says, there are some people where they're very naturally introverted by their nature and they have a strong desire towards concepts. And the only thing that speaks to them is philosophical inquiry and ideas. And he says, this is a natural phenomenon, finds it in all peoples. And therefore you also find Jews with this nature. But when Jews have this nature, they do what's customary in Jewish society, which is to study Talmud. Meaning, is there any real difference between the philosophers and scientists and, and, and of any nation and the guy sitting in the show studying Talmud all day? Some people are naturally scholarly introverts. And so what do they do? They study scholarly introvert pursuits. And if you grow up in, you know, a traditional Jewish society, what is the scholarly pursuit available to you? Talmud. So what do you do? And everyone thinks you're so holy, but you're not so holy. You're just a regular person who has a nature to be a scholarly introvert. Now, like, his point is not, well, therefore there's no value in your study. His point is something needs to change internally about the way you relate to the study, which is what we're going to see developing. So he says it very sharply here. What is that? This is, this is a book of Hasidic discourses. Um, this is the, a discourse on Parsha Toldos. Um, yeah, he says, look, you even have idolaters. They leave all sorts of pleasures of the world behind, and they go and they study, study like astronomy and philosophy. And he says, look, history is full of people like that. 
who abandoned. He said, even if people were princes and kings who left it all because they wanted to like study things that were, you know, needed quiet in the library and solitude and personal discipline. People, some people are like that. It doesn't make you holy. It's just one of the many forms humanity can take. But the point here is not to invalidate the study. The point is, don't be sufficed with that external thing. It's a lacking in service. And you can go then take that same message to the reverse. Even if I find struggle, if it's not the right kind of struggle, I shouldn't be satisfied with that. I, the struggle needs to be the right kind of struggle. It's the struggle of my devotion to God overcoming resistance, not something else overcoming resistance. Not that that ever invalidates the mitzvahs themselves. Good. We'll hold it here. Tomorrow's open questions and answers. You can ask me about anything you want. Um, you're, you're, if I don't know, I don't know. Obviously related to Judaism.